want to comment. First, I recently learned about a gentleman, former governor of the Connecticut colony, I think the first governor of the Connecticut colony, named John Winthrop the Younger, and he was uh, the son of the more famous John Winthrop from the Massachusetts history. And one of the things that this John Winthrop the Younger did was he acted as the sole doctor for the entire colony uh, of Connecticut. He would see many, many patients, and one of the things that he was known for were his... Mm, the inside, yes, the, the flowing the flowing waters of knowledge in, inside of us, like the blood that carries information. English vampires. And if you guys haven't heard about this, you are going to hear about it. Vampires. The dark moon goddess Hakati, the connections of the barking dog and moon goddess combine to make many, many myths riddled throughout history. The depths of symbolism in antiquity. Why? Why is there so much vampirism in history? It is quite fascinating and interesting. Mark Steves and myself are talking to a couple different authors on the topic. Vampirism in modern history and much more. This episode will be on a regular feed, but I believe the other ones will be on our Patreons. And you can go and subscribe there after we have posted such to get more vampire stories. But before we go into the interview with Dr. Bell, I thought it fitting to read of you one of the most original vampires in all of history. Some know her as the original wife of Adam, whilst others know her as a dark goddess that murders children. And men know her of the one who sleeps in their room when they are alone and has their way with them. This deity in this goddess 
is known as Lilith. According to Augustine Calumet, Lilith has connections with early views on vampires and sorcery. Some learned men have thought they've discovered the vestiges of vampirism in the remotest antiquity. But all that they say of it does not come near what is related of the vampires. The Lamai, the Strigae, the sorcerers whom they accused of sucking blood of living people, and thus of causing their death, the magicians who were said to have caused the death of newborn children by charms of malignant spells are nothing less than what we understand the name of vampires. Even were it to be owned that these Lamay and Strigae have really existed, which we do not believe can ever well be proved. I own that these terms, Lamai and Strigai, are found in the versions of Holy Scripture. For instance, Isaiah describing the condition to which Babylon was to be reduced after her ruin says that she shall become the abode of the satyrs, the Lamai and the Strigai. In Hebrew, this is Lilith. The last term, according to the Hebrews, signifies the same things as the Greeks expressed by Strix and Lamai, which are sorcerers or magicians who seek to put death to newborn children, whence it comes that the Jews are accustomed to write in the four corners of the chamber of a woman just delivered, Adam, Eve, be gone from, hence Lilith, the ancient Greeks knew these dangerous sorceress by the name of Lamai. They believed that they devoured children or sucked away all their blood till they died. And according to Sigmund Heritz of the Talmudic Lilith is connected to the Greek Lamia, who, according to Hurwitz, likewise governed a class of child-stealing Lamia demons. Lamia bore the title child killer, and was feared for her malevolence, like Lilith. She has different conflicting origins and is described as having a human upper body from the waist up and a serpentine body from the waist down. One source states simply that she is a daughter of the goddess Hecate. Another, that Lamia was subsequently cursed by the goddess Hera, to have stillborn children because of her association with Zeus. Alternatively, Hera slew all of Lamia's children except Celia, in anger that Lamia slept with her husband, Zeus. The grief caused Lamia to turn into a monster that took revenge of mothers by stealing their children and devouring them. Lamia had a vicious sexual appetite that matched her cannibalistic appetite for children. She was notorious for being a vampiric spirit and loved sucking men's blood. Her gift was the mark of a sibyl, a gift of the second sight. Zeus was said to have given her the gift of sight. However, she was cursed to never be able to shut her eyes so that she would forever obsess over her dead children, taking pity on Lamia, Zeus gave her the ability 
to remove and replace her eyes from their sockets. Well, there you have it, my friends. Uh, a little peek into some vampiric history. It's interesting if you dig deeper into the Lilith stories and the stories of the dark goddess in history that you find these associations with serpents and vampires and vampiric tendencies in the moon with the ancient matriarchs. I just find it fascinating. But without further ado, are you ready? We're going to have a fun conversation with Dr. Bell on his wonderful book, Food for the Dead. Ladies and gentlemen, here we are on the rising from the ashes. My family thinks I'm crazy. Swap cast edition, special edition. <laughs> and today, Roman and I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Michael Bell about his very interesting book dealing with New England folklore, vampires, and his book is titled Food for the Dead. So naturally, we got into some pretty... Uh, morose spooky topics roman you invited me to to participate thank you uh for, course, for doing that this was such a fascinating conversation i'm excited to present it to both our audiences but what inspired you to look into this subject and uh to reach out to to dr bell well there's a couple things uh first i got deep into some rabbit holes of uh, medicinal um, cannibalism and clinical vampirism. When uh, we were doing the occult book club with Juan and Thomas and Gabe a few months back, um, this book called The Book of Werewolves by Sabine Gould. And that really started me uh, down this strange esoteric looking into our history of medicine and how it kind of like medicine and folklore medicine and these like strange stories of vampires and werewolves and how they're kind of always grouped together in stories but how um our ancestors and and um different cultures have been actually imbuing them into their societies and and so that really fascinated me and then just on esoteric america we were looking into um looking into your hometown new haven connecticut and i found his book through that research and i was like oh my god there was a huge case of swath of what they were considering to be vampires in new england back in the uh the mid 1800s and uh even before that so like that whole that whole time period so it's super fascinating and i was just like i actually i emailed him in the middle of our esoteric america podcast oh wow like yeah, sometimes I'll do that. If I'm on a whim, I'm like, and I find somebody's email, I'm like, well, I'm not going to wait because I might forget to email them. So I just do it right then and there. Mm. And um, and we conjured him up, man. And uh, it was a great show. And uh, thanks for holding it down half the time because I, uh, I did have a little bit of trouble hearing what he was saying. Some of the audio is just a little bit, um, but we're cleaning it up. So what you guys get to hear is the golden golden egg yeah it'll the, sound um, way better it was really more of a volume issue i i don't know where what you're working with over there but i have like a an onboard volume so i can like turn up what i'm hearing you know so i was able to hear him pretty well but i had to like jack the volume up a little bit on yeah. my end mm -hmm. um but yeah fascinating conversation uh maybe not 
the typical uh, guest for a conspiracy podcast. He he did seem to have more of a uh, normal um, perspective on the whole world of uh, disease and germs and all that. Um, so, you know, trigger warning, folks. He does talk about <laughs> that uh, pandemic, pandemic that we all know and hate here in this world. But, uh, yeah, he didn't seem to have that same conviction as us. But uh, don't let that dismay you. It's still a very fascinating conversation from the guy who's been, you know, educated by the American uh, institution. So he's definitely reflects that. But he also has mm-hmm. some... Uh, some, I guess, nonconformist views as well, which I appreciated. So, yeah, fascinating discussion. Uh, thanks, folks, for tuning in to the Rising from the Ashes podcast or the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. If you're not subscribed to both, go into the app that you're listening to this show on and make sure you're subscribed to the Rising from the Ashes podcast or the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, depending on how you met us here at the crossroads. But uh, let's get right into this fantastic conversation with Dr. Michael Bell. Cheers. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Rising from the Ashes. My family thinks I'm crazy. Crossover conversation with another fantastic guest. Today, I am so enlightened and uh, joyous to be here with my buddy Mark because this is from his neck of the woods, this topic we're going to be talking about, with an author that is uh, prolific in American folklore. And this specific case on his book, Food for the Dead, about the New England vampires. And if you guys haven't heard about this, you are going to hear about it. We've done some history of vampires on our live stream on Sunday and the weird, sticky uh, history of medical cannibalism and the strange things intertwined with all of that. So, hey, here we are. Um, Hello, Mark. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. Glad we're doing this swap cast. Thanks for all the Rising from the Ashes audience members and everybody who tunes into Roman and I's Esoteric America. But let's let's invite our, our guest into this conversation. Michael Bell, how are you, sir? This is a, a fantastic opportunity. You've spent many, many decades looking into these very fascinating subjects. So for two young guns like Roman and I, it's a true privilege to have you here. And I, I hope we can do a lot of listening. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a, a tall order for my friend Roman. But uh, I'll, I'll be sure to keep them, uh, you know, at bay while we while we ask you some really good questions. But maybe I can throw a question your way. Would you like to introduce yourself for our audience and maybe tell them how you got interested in folklore to begin with? Oh, well, my name is Michael Bell, and uh, I live in uh, Rhode Island some of the time, and Texas the rest of the time. And I got interested in. And folklore, which I didn't know at the time it was even folklore when I was very young, growing up listening to family stories. Uh, Many of them were what you would call like supernatural stories. They were on the cusp between something that could really have happened and probably didn't. And that's what made them so exciting and and real and unreal at the same time. Even at a young age, my mind wanted to grasp the dialectic, what we call now the dialectic of the legend, because it's on that cusp of 
of being believable and not believable. And you hear it from your relatives and you say, well, they don't, they don't lie to you. They don't lie to little kids, do they? And they, they tell you things that they said really happened to them that you can't fathom. So I started thinking about these things. And I went to college and got a degree in anthropology and archaeology and, and got my master's level work done in that. And uh, make this long story shorter, at that point, I decided that I really wanted to go back to my love of, of folklore. And so I went to UCLA with my wife. We both got master's degrees in folklore and mythology. Oh, that's and, amazing. Uh, waited around for the PhD program to materialize, which didn't. So then we packed up a U-Haul truck and our and our baby daughter and dogs, cats, and went to Bloomington, Indiana, where we got uh, into the PhD program at Indiana University in folklore. And that's where I got my doctoral degree. That was uh, many years ago, like 43 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. You clearly have, have studied a lot. And um, being a, a native New Englander, I can attest to the fact that there are plenty of stories about all sorts of things, no matter where you look or where you grew up. Uh, everything from the more common uh, big hairy ape wild man kind of stories uh, to things that are a little less tangible like uh, will-o'-wisps and floating ghost ships. But this topic that we're going to get into today, it's in, a, it, it's in a different realm of folklore, I would argue, and I'm sh I think you would agree, because it touches on something that humans are still very um, insecure about, and that is our health, right? Mm -hmm. Especially over the past few years. I mean, the, the insecurity around health has reached an all-new height. But um, back in three, 400 years ago in the colonial days of New England, there was, I would maybe guess, a similar amount of insecurity around health because they were in this new land that was all, you know, fearsome and, and wild to them, right? And naturally, when you have people in a foreign land, uh, they bring with them the culture of their home and impose it on this new world, right? And and we see that with the, the vampire. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the imposition doesn't always work out that well because mm -hmm. when you're in a new environment, both physically, cultural, social, uh, what you brought with you may not act actually work that well. And so, obviously, people are very adaptable, and their culture is adaptable just like us as human beings, physically. And so, you know, you adapt to, to your situation and your environment. So the folklore that maybe you bring from your old uh, culture, your home, where you came from, if it doesn't fit exactly, you find new ways to make it work. And that, I mean, that's that's the the dynamic and static aspects of folklore. Both, it's always the same in a sense, but it's always different because every iteration is, is unique, unique and new. Mm. And so that's a, a long way of saying when people came here and they faced 
uh, uncertainty, the folklore did come into play because that's, you know, that's where uh, folk beliefs really uh, are activated, particularly the kind that people call superstition. I try to avoid the term for some reasons, but. What are mm. those reasons? Yes, yes. Well, I think if, if you're doing something and I look at it and I say, that's just an old superstition, it's not telling me too much about what you're doing. It's just telling everybody about how I feel about what you're doing, mm -hmm. which is very re re you know, relevant or it doesn't reveal too much either. So I just, I try to take uh, all the beliefs that and practices that, that people perform and look at them you know, from their own context first, get the insider's point of view, you know, the esoteric point. Mm, the inside, yes, the the flowing the flowing waters of knowledge in, inside of us, like the blood that carries information. Um, <laughs> so you, uh, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. You were talking about you know people coming to what was them a new world. Of course, it wasn't a new world for the indigenous people that were already here. Mm -hmm. We were uh, invading immigrants, really, but. What was found here was very different in some ways from what people left behind. But they brought other things with them that were undesirable, such as the diseases, like smallpox and consumption, which is what the, I think the major uh, medical topic on the table today for this talk is uh, a disease that was mysterious because people didn't understand the germ theory, or at least that uh, it, in terms of consumption until late in the 1800s, 1882, was I think when Edward Cook, a German medical doctor and scientist, uh, announced his discovery of the, of the bacillus, the germ that, that caused the disease. So until then, it was a it was a total mystery. The people who would get the disease would be diagnosed. They went to a doctor, whatever passed for a doctor in those days. We're talking the 1700s. And if the doctor was honest, what the doctor would say, well, you have consumption and there's not much we can do about it. It's basically Thing. It's in you know it's it's in the hands of, of God or whoever, mm. <laughs> and people were not willing to accept uh, a death sentence. And I think that's true today too. We have diseases that we don't understand that we can't cure that we try to cope with, and, and if the medical profession says really there's not much we can do, we can give you very little hope, then people are going to turn somewhere else for answers. Because you have to have answers, and I think that's within us as human beings. Mm. It's hard to say, oh, I don't know. And you can say I don't know, but we don't want to accept that. And so you turn to something else, and folklore, folk medicine, always has an answer. 
It may not be the scientifically valid answer. It may seem crazy to some people, but at least it's an answer. Well, and, and I think that's what it is with the consumption rituals in New England. Mm, yeah, and I, I do want to learn more about that. I do want to comment first. I recently learned about a gentleman former governor of the Connecticut colony, I think the first governor of the Connecticut colony, named John Winthrop the Younger, and he was uh, the son of the more famous John Winthrop from the Massachusetts history. And one of the things that this John Winthrop the Younger did was he acted as the sole doctor for the entire colony uh, of Connecticut. He would see many, many patients, and one of the things that he was known for were his alchemical concoctions, right? These sort of potions of antimony and other sorts of mineral blends. And yeah, it, when you read that kind of these accounts of, you know, him experimenting with herbs and learning from tribes about which herbs to use and then blending those with metals, you know, it, it, it's, it's fascinating, but it also seems very risky the way they were doing things back then. You know, you could easily uh, maybe fall victim to the potion uh, as quickly as you would that, that illness that you were uh, originally stricken with. You know, most medicines have a risk. Right? Yeah. You look at any, look at any uh, prescription medicine on the market now, and you're going to read the fine print. <laughs> It's the, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, you're, you're you're taking this to like maybe relive to relieve an unsightly skin condition. Okay. You want to look nice, but then you start reading the side effects, and it's, you know, they end up with could cause death, and everything in between. So you think about, well, is it worth taking this risk just so that my skin will be clear or whatever? whatever condition we're talking about. So I don't think, I don't think the alchemy you know, side effects and all the other stuff that maybe Winthrop was into were something new, and it's, it's not something that, that only exists in the past. You know, it's still with us. Uh, we don't have to turn very far to our own recent past and look at the, the coronavirus variants that have been circulating now for, what, three, three years. And, of course, that was mysterious, especially when it first started. And so we were getting a lot of folklore generated about what can you do about it? How can we treat it? You know, everything from injecting bleach to holding your breath, sneezing. And, and then there were quacks coming out with products that they said, you know, to cure this. Or keep you or prevent you from getting it. So, in that sense, we haven't come as far as we like to believe. I think in terms of our of our uh, thoughts about how to treat uh, physical ailments. So, if we look back at what they did in 18th and 19th century New England, we don't have to break our arm patting ourselves on the back over how far we've come. <laughs> we don't have the knowledge. Than they had 200 years ago, but we're not smarter than they were 200 years ago. We just think we are. Mm, right. 
Right. And, and, and as you said, you know, people were coming up with all sorts of uh, folklore over the past three years to try to come up with a possible solution to this. And I love the way you use that term because it reminds us, me, Roman, and everyone listening that folklore is not something that only exists in the past. You know, it's something mm-hmm. that's alive. It's a living body of information. So uh, maybe we're getting a little too far afield, but to circle back, you mentioned a, a consumption ritual. Was this a practice undergone by someone who was, uh, let's say, um, you know, told that they had consumption, then they would go about this ritual to maybe cure themselves? How, what, what did that entail? Well, the, the ritual itself, that because it's part of folklore, if there are different variants of, of how to do it, but basically there were several uh, acts that you have to perform, mainly around looking for a dead relative who might be responsible in some way for the death of, of the living relatives who were dying of consumption. Not to consumption, it's Let's define what that is. It was probably, in most cases, pulmonary tuberculosis. So it would be tuberculosis that settled in your lungs. And it was an insidious disease for several reasons. For one, it wasn't like a fast-burning disease, like smallpox or scarlet fever, you know, where you would get sick, and then you would die or you would recover because there weren't too many treatments for these things. But consumption was was a disease that could settle in you, inside of you, say in your lungs mostly. And it could be dormant for a while. You wouldn't even know you had it. Until all this time, you're still infecting other people. Uh, But once it started to take hold of of you, uh, it would be deteriorating your lungs. And so, Day by day, week by week, sometimes it would take months or even years for a person to die from uh, consumption. Why it was called consumption is because physically, it basically consumed your body. So you would get weaker and weaker. Your lungs would start to deteriorate, harder to breathe, go to bed at night, you're lying on your back. And it feels like there's heavy weight on your chest because your lungs are collapsing. You're coughing up blood, and as the disease progresses, you cough up more and more blood, from teaspoonful of blood to cupsful of blood. So if your relatives come into your bedroom in the morning to, to check on you, and you've got blood at the corners of your mouth and on your bed clothes, well, they're thinking, my gosh, something is literally sucking the blood, the life out of this poor person. What was it? Ooh. Well, they didn't. It was the vampire was a was a microscopic organism. And so the, the folk belief was that something was inside of you that was killing you. But it wasn't just inside of you. It was in one of your dead relatives also who died from this. And some sort of evil spirit that inhabited that force, maybe in the vital organs, the heart, the lungs, or the liver, 
and it was using that as a base of operation to sympathetically, that is, from a distance, take down the other members of the family, one at a time. And so to obviously to cure this, to kill it, we had to go and find out which of the which of the dead uh, family members was responsible. So the very first act of this ritual was usually to confront the corpse. And mostly that meant you had to exhume the body because mostly they had already been buried. And so you confront the corpse, you look for signs that it's still not completely dead, and you're looking for organs that had fresh blood in them. That is liquid blood. So if a heart had liquid blood when it was cut open, that was interpreted as fresh blood. So how would a corpse that's dead get fresh blood into it? Well, obviously, it was drawing the fresh blood from living relatives. And those are the ones who were dwindling away day by day and week by week because they were losing blood to this thing that was inhabiting the corpse. So we had to kill it, whatever it was. Usually you would do that by uh, cutting out the, the harmful organs, the ones that have fresh blood, and burn them. Usually burn them to ashes, completely burn them. And then sometimes you would feed the ashes to people in the family who were sick as a kind of medicine. Sometimes it was stipulated that it would be fed to somebody in uh, other kinds of medicine of some sort or water. And that was supposed to neutralize the evil. Did that have any success rate uh, from your studies? Have you found that that was actually something that was helping uh, the, the families that were dealing with this? Because we know that tuberculosis or consumption was... Um, yeah, well... It, maybe this is not that interesting, but I find it interesting that doing nothing uh, or going to a medical doctor or performing this folk ritual, the outcome was virtually about the same. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it's like it's like most diseases. Uh, some people will get well. Uh, some people will not recover and they'll die if nothing's done. And if people went to medical doctors at this time, and we're talking about the throughout most of the 1800s and before, uh, they were of the Galenist tradition, the medical doctors. And what that meant is they were looking for uh, humors in your body being unbalanced. And there were different humors. And to balance these humors, what they would do is... is make you throw up or give you something that would be a diuretic uh, or they would in many cases open a vein and bleed you so think about that you're sick and you're losing blood as it is so you go to a doctor and he starts bleeding you I mean the fact is that's even going to make it worse than doing nothing or then going to the cemetery and exhuming a body and cutting out the heart and burning it and taking the ashes. So, yeah, the outcomes were probably very similar 
Can we talk a little bit more uh, about the humors in case people are unfamiliar with that? Because that was a, an antiquated um, system of medicine that a lot of people have no idea. Uh, but it's a, there's a very famous uh, painting that goes along with it, uh, dividing it into like the four different colors in the human body, starting right. with the core. And um, do you want to give us your? Uh, I don't know. There was I think there was black bile and uh, another kind of bile. Yeah, black, yellow, red, white, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they would check the the color of the bile, and then they would, like, cross-correlate it with um, other met forms of medicine that was just... It was really interesting, I mean, how, uh, how the humors was... <laughs> embellished at this time because it was like one of the the long uh long lasting forms of medicine for so long and it seemed to be oh, effective yeah. but at it some started point with, it, the, with the ancient greeks mm. so it was you know a couple of thousand years or longer that's a long time basically ineffective medical treatment persisted so again, it takes us back to that. It's a situation where there's no answer for you, but then you're going to find an answer somewhere else. Mm. Well, and then, you know, it may be harder for people in our time period to sort of wrap their heads around this uh, worldview of the ancient mind that wasn't separating uh, maybe the spiritual and the physical the same way the modern mind does, right? So a lot of what you look at uh, when you see, you know, the way people would deal with problems we would deal with differently now, you know, they're taking into account uh, their spiritual worldview, which was, I mean, mm -hmm. essentially all people had to a certain extent to educate themselves depending on their standing in society. I mean, you know, for the most part, if you were, were literate at all, it was because you had access to a Bible, you know? And, and so that's speaking only for the Western civilization, but, uh, but yeah, it, it's interesting to, to look at uh, how incompetent <laughs> the medical industry <laughs> has been in the past and also sort of uh, realize, well, they're, they're still somewhat incompetent uh, to a certain extent, although we have, you know, done many things to uh, mitigate tuberculosis. I mean, this is a relatively rare, I hope, thing to get nowadays. Um, how common is tuberculosis? It's a worldwide condition right now. Millions of people die mm. of tuberculosis in the world Yeah, every year. And are in some maybe more rural areas, do yeah. people still connect this sort of vampire lore to right. consumption? Well, one of the problems is that our, our microbic adversaries, like the tuberculosis bacillus, uh, they evolve. <laughs> it's like COVID. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you get an effective antibiotic for tuberculosis, but because, well, here's an example. Uh, in a place where, let's say in, uh, in prisons in Russia, a good example, where tuberculosis was rampant, because you're living in close close quarters and, and it's not sanitary and it's a very contagious disease. And so 
the authorities would give the prisoners antibiotics, but they wouldn't give them the full treatment because it was expensive. These were just people that were castaways anyway. They weren't important. So why bother giving them full treatment? Well, what that does is partially, it selects for the stronger uh, bacteria. And so they evolve. They evolve to the point where whatever antibiotic treatments or combinations, your cocktails of antibiotics you're using, aren't effective anymore. And that's what's, what's happened with, with tuberculosis worldwide. Mm. It's becoming increasingly difficult to, uh, to eradicate it with you know, the antibiotics that we uh, created say starting in the in the early 1940s with, with streptomycin that was the first effective really effective treatment for tuberculosis aside from just isolating people so they didn't infect other people and also creating sanitary at a sanitary environment well and, and how much of that is is you know to blame, I guess blame isn't really the right word, but how much is that responsible for, uh, let's say, the lack of tuberculosis in certain areas uh, as opposed to others, right? Is it the standard through which our hygiene has, you know, raised considerably that we can, you know, thank for for not getting tuberculosis as often? Is that all it is? That's a very important, that's a very important aspect of it. Right. Mm. You're eliminating the, the conditions where these, where the bacteria can thrive. Mm. Mm. But isn't and, the... and it's, and it's like the, you know, they call it herd immunity and so on. When, once you've got a population there where it's very, 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 very few people have this condition, then it's, it's hard for it to take hold and spread. Right, right. Yeah, it definitely feels like, you know, as much as antibiotics have helped people and I've, I've used them at certain points in my life to get over certain bacterial infections and, you know, it's it's almost seems futile to try to uh, use these antibiotics in the long term uh, because of that what you just described, this, na the nature of promulgation, you know, living beings, they evolve, they, they want to survive. And when you put a pressure on them, they adapt to that pressure to, to thrive. Quickly. Yeah. Quickly some, as well. When people look at, you know, you, you can look at the human body, for example, from the point of view of, of bacteria, we're, you know, mm -hmm. we're the host, we're the universe. And uh, they're just trying to uh, maintain their existence, and they depend on, you know, the host. So. Yeah, yeah, and it's uh, it's, and then you have to thus. Uh, I, I'm heavily uh, in the in the field of you can take care of a lot of bacterial function in your body through diet. You really can. Um, and, you know, obviously it's not the, I'm not going to say you can get rid of every disease and bacterial uh, infection through just eating more carrots or, or whatever. Um, but, you know, it's a great way to start. And there's also a lot of uh, really cool um, practices with uh, magnets and like magnetism and like kind of like affecting different parts of uh, 
like putting a heavier um, charge into a certain area where you have a bacterial infection and it's uh I mean, you know, it's just as effective as some of the flu medicine, really. <laughs> I wouldn't say it's more effective. You don't want to kill all the bacteria in your body. No, 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 no. We, you need it, we have absolutely. Some, you know, yeah. we have some in our gut mm-hmm. that are absolutely necessary for us to live, to, to be able to process food. <laughs> Serious. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If you've, ever had, if you've ever had a problem where you've had to take strong antibiotics, that kills everything in your gut. I had to go through this at one mm-hmm. point. Yep. Because it was just persistent. And so the, the medical profession said, well, here's the, what we have to do. We're going to have to kill all the bacteria that you have, but you're going to have to reestablish, you know, the good stuff. Mm-hmm. So after the, the, they kill all the bacteria in your gut, then you take uh, things like probiotics, you know, yogurt, yogurt culture or whatever. Mm. You have to reestablish that biosome, that biosphere in, in your gut. So, you know, we have to be realistic and be selective about, you know, how we how we pinpoint what's the bad part and, and fill that and leave the good things. It's complicated and... Yeah. You know, our little microbe adversaries, uh, you know, they don't care one way or the other. They just continue to evolve, and they evolve so rapidly because their lifespan is so short. Their generations are so short that they can evolve more quickly than scientists can keep up with uh, trying to head them off and trying to prevent them from killing us. So that's the... That's one of the challenges and also the fascinating parts about uh, medicine, Mm. trying to stay, you know, more than one step behind, trying to stay one step ahead of our adversaries. It's very difficult. We're still not, we'll never be, I don't think we'll ever be out of the bacterial woods like that. So the the specific uh, cases of New England, like I know we know that there was consumption happening all over the states at this at earlier uh, in, in in history, but it was seemed to be consolidated in in this area of uh, the Northeast. And why do you think that was? And um, or was that the only place that was really known about? Was it happening as densely in other places of the country? Uh, well. First of all, other places in the country weren't as as uh, densely settled yeah. As, yeah. as the Northeast. And people from the Northeast, you know, eventually were moving west. And out west, out west in the early 1800s, that was Ohio. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's well, called the Old Southwest? That was like Arkansas. So you you know, it's all relative, right? So the Northeast, the New England, was the center. That in the mid-Atlantic states were pretty much the center of of the United States in the early years, and I don't think it's a coincidence that the Industrial Revolution in America began at Slater Mill in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, in the early 1790s, and that's about the time when consumption started really uh, wreaking havoc in this area. Wow. So industrial industrialization 
meant putting more people together in places like the mills and the mill villages instead of being spread out, you know, on the farms where you've got more fresh air and, and you're outside a lot. Now you're cooped up, you know, in this mill, which is it's noisy and polluting and dangerous to start with. And they're there with other people who, you know, if somebody gets a cold who's working next to you, you're going to get it. And then that other person, and then you're going to take it home and your family's going to get it. So, and that's the same thing with uh, tuberculosis, that kind of propinquity being next to people all the time. And I think that's why that was the period when consumption started really to become a problem too. Mm-hmm. Now, what what do you think was being uh, produced at the mills? Like, was there a specific product that might have uh, induced induced uh, tuberculosis? Like, was it paper making, um, or was there like a specific well, most mill? Of the, most of the mills in in New England in the early days, besides you know mills for uh, processing grain, you know, grinding corn and stuff like that. Uh, they were textile mills. There were there are different mm. sorts of different operations involved mm. in textiles. You know, a lot of it is yeah, it's polluting and dirty inside. People would get what's called brown lung. You know, miners get black lung from the coal dust, but people would get what was called brown lung from just the, the byproducts of, of the whole process of making uh, uh, cloth. Well, it seems like a compounding of factors, right? Because you have all this dust, you have a bunch of people who shouldn't normally be living that close together on such a consistent basis. They were probably working much longer hours than people work these days. I mean, oh, yeah. you know, there were no exactly. labor laws back then. So you well, have... Was... Go ahead. Yeah. They were you know, working long hours, and it wasn't just uh, adults either. The children were working in the mills. You know, they were doing jobs that the adults couldn't do because they were smaller and they get into smaller spaces and things like that. It, it took it took a long time before the labor laws were put into place to kind of relieve these conditions and and, and also keep the keep children from having to go into these uh, terrible work environments. Well, and also, you know, at that time, London was was. Uh, you know, a very <laughs> filthy place, and you have all these people packing onto ships, which, you know, they'd have to be on for several months before they even got to the New World. So even that scenario doesn't seem like it would, uh, you know, lend to health. You know, this is like a compounding of several different factors. Right. And then, of course, the Native Americans uh, not being accustomed to uh, European sort of microculture, they were... Right you know, had to assimilate very quickly to the new bacterias being brought mm. over. And I'm sure that led yeah, to a lot of, a lot of conflict, you know, spiritual conflict. I, I've even read things about, you know, the Native Americans interpreting uh, this as a sort of spiritual omen that people were passing away so much and that they had made a mistake by befriending the colonists and this was their, their punishment for it. And, you know, it, it, I think that's, 
kind of, again, you know, the way folklore and a person's worldview affects uh, their interpretation of something that we now know uh, as, you know, these micro invaders or these are micro uh, bacterial adversaries, as you say. And I think that's a really brilliant way to put it. Because before uh, we had microscopes, I mean, we really couldn't tell what was going on um, uh, in this realm. Disease is often interpreted as uh, as a punishment, either you know, depending on your your spiritual or religious beliefs, Mm -hmm. punishment by God, or you know, in, in a modern in a modern setting, people talk about like karma, this kind of diffuse, uh, this diffuse power to, uh, to punish people who do wrong. You know, it's kind of like what goes around, comes around, doing to others. So now if people get a disease that's hard to cure, in a sense, uh, some people might interpret that as as a as a, a punishment for something you've done. It's karma coming back to get you. Yeah, it's violating. You're violating what is called the golden rule. Mm. You know, in the Christian religion, to do unto others as you would have others do unto you. What do you believe about uh, about the the energy and the the folklore behind karma? Well, I, I'm talking about the modern kind of popular culture uh, notion of karma. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think it's very comforting for people to believe that. It's, you know, you'll get your just rewards somewhere, sometimes, somehow. But the harm you do will come back uh, to bite you. I mean, and that's a, I think that's a comforting thought for many people because when things are out of your hands and out of your control, then you can always turn to the notion that, well, this person's going to get their just rewards when the time comes. And it's always, in a sense, it's, it's satisfying to believe that. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In a balanced and fair world. Right. Well, it's a, it's a good... Me- it's not it's a balanced and fair world. Yeah, yeah, it's a good it's a good way to help you sleep at night in, in an ever-growing, uh, chaotic society. I, I would yeah. say... And I think it's also a way to diffuse anger and aggression. Mm. Yeah. You don't feel that you have to personally take on whatever this evil is or confront this person that you think is harmful or bad. You can be at peace thinking, okay, well, this person's going to get right. their just rewards. And I don't have to worry about it because that spiritually that's going to happen beyond me. Right. Well, and, and we'd hope that, that people are given this sort of golden rule at a young age because if not, we end up with... Uh, 
sinister characters like Lady Bathory. I mean, I don't know exactly what happened to her in her life that convinced her to bathe in blood, but I want to, you know, maybe to segue back to the, the topic of vampires. Have vampires always been in folklore associated with disease, or is it a more murkier ground than that? Because with someone like uh, Lady Bathory, I mean, she she's by all accounts a, a sort of serial killer, um, and, you know, we have a much different folklore around these sort of figures in modern culture, yeah. but in the past, would vampires kind of be a catch-all for, you know, evil things that they couldn't no. understand? No. The vampire is a, is a classic scapegoat. Oh, it's something you can blame for, for, for when things go wrong. You want to have, you want to have a, a cause. Kind of like karma. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, so, no, it wasn't always it, it wasn't always associated. Vampires were not always associated with disease or a particular disease. But it was with any unexplained series of deaths. And we're talking about the, the, the vampire belief in Europe, you know, in its early earlier stages. Yes. In, uh, particularly. And so if you live in a village, let's say in the, you know, 1400s, and somebody dies and you don't really know why, they don't know exact cause, and then someone else dies, and someone else dies, and maybe it's people in one family who are dying, and then you have to start looking for a cause beyond the natural world, and you don't have to do it. That's what people did oftentimes. And that's why they would go to the cemeteries and, and assume the bodies and see if one of them was uh, not quite dead. And so it was causing the deaths of the people, either out of revenge or uh, because they were jealous or because the people that, that were dying that didn't uh, perform the their right social rituals when they should have or how they should have done that. So in the vampire belief as it existed in, in Europe, it was a pretty elaborate cultural system. So there were, you know, lots of reasons for someone to become a vampire. Maybe just as simple as the cat walking across the court. So, so you had to observe, you know, all of these uh, social relationships and also had to observe the right in the right way to make sure that someone, you know, stayed dead and didn't come back to the realm of the living to try to make things right or to get revenge. So it wasn't just a disease, but it could be accidents. People having accidents to do. And in in most folk belief systems, you know, there are no there are no accidents. Things don't just happen. There's always a cause. And so the, uh, the folk system will help direct you toward finding a cause. Mm -hmm. Once you find yes. the cause, then you can uh, alleviate the situation. You can cure it. Or you can get rid of whatever it is that's, that's uh, making the, your situation uh, unhealthy or disastrous. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and there's a need for for the human mind to almost put things into a narrative or a story, and I wonder if that ultimately is a survival mechanism that's of benefit. You know, this this propensity for people to want to grasp uh, to a story or a narrative that explains something otherwise unexplainable, and I think folklore yeah. often takes that uh, role, right? Yeah, narr- well, narratives. Narratives make things concrete. So if you tell a specific story about a you know a certain person at a certain time, you know you're you're filling in a context that gives it a reality. You know, and the story the story gives it a reality, and rather than just giving you some abstract theory about something, if you can tell a story that relates how things unfolded and why they unfolded. It gives you, uh, it also gives you, you know, a map for the future, a path to take for the future. When you tell a story about, oh, this is, this is what happened to, to Mercy, and this is what we did to get out of the situation, and you tell this, you know, that, that story, then someone else can take that and apply it maybe in a situation that's similar in their own lives. Do you uh, mind telling us uh, or and the audience one of the more famous stories of um, the New England vampires? Because Mercy Brown is a very popular story um, in this in this realm and in your book. Do you mind telling telling us one of these stories of the family uh, that was uh, that, that was uh, heavily affected and accounted to be vampires back in the day? If I'm not mistaken, John. Oh, I can't remember his name. Uh, John. Hmm? Are you thinking of Josiah Spaulding? It might be Josiah. I know it starts with a J. This gentleman starts with a J. But uh, from Vermont or from Vermont. Connecticut or Dummerston, Vermont. Yeah. Are you asking yep. me to tell you my favorite? Please. Yeah, yes. we'd love also, to hear your favorite yes. one. Yeah. Please. It's kind of like asking a parent, you know, who's your favorite child? <laughs> it's like, wait on it. Oh, there's so many. Uh, well, they're I'm not going to say interesting. That's such a weak word, but they're dramatic, fascinating uh, stories that I found. Come up to around eighty-six or eighty-seven cases in in the New England area, extended. Uh, so it's. Some of them are just, there no, there's really hardly any story attached to it. And some of them are so uh, detailed that you can, you can put a face on the people involved. You know their names, do the genealogy and the other research, the census records, so you can find out about them and you can create an entire narrative of, of what happened to this this family or this community because of uh, consumption, because they undertook this ritual. One of the most interesting ones uh, happened in Belchertown, 
Massachusetts in 1788. I don't know if you're familiar with this story, but the Reverend Justice Forward, who was the congregational minister of this town, uh, Belchertown, in the Connecticut River Valley in Massachusetts, uh, wrote a letter to a friend of his who was in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. And in the letter, he described how he was going to another town with his daughter, whose name happened to be Mercy. And he said, in the letter, he said, you can imagine how concerned I was when she started hemorrhaging. He said, because you know that I've had several daughters already die of consumption. And Mercy is sick. And now it looks like she's dying. And so I wondered, and he's writing this in, in his letter, I wondered if it was possible for the dead to pray on the living. So he goes on in the letter and he says, I, I called a consultation. And he's the minister, the congregational minister, and also was the medical doctor, like you said about uh, Winthrop from Connecticut, the governor. You know, people in a position of authority in those days, the early days, also had to be you know, medical doctors and, and a lot of other things. So he asked the consultation that he called together whether he should exhume the bodies of some of his family to try to determine if the dead were playing, praying on the living. And you can read between the lines in the letter, apparently uh, not everybody thought that was a good idea, but eventually he said they consented. And there were some medical doctors in, involved in this consultation too. And so he said, well, we decided to go and dig up the body of my mother-in-law in a nearby town. She, she was from Hatfield. And he said, we didn't find what we supposed we would find. In other words, she was too decomposed. So he, so he says in the letter, then said, then the next day, that would have been yesterday from his letter, he's describing what just happened two days and, and one day before. He said, then we decided to exhume the body of, the body of my daughter, Martha Dwight. She was a young married woman, but her last name had been changed to Dwight. And he said, he described how the doctors described her body. And it's almost uh, clinical in the description. One of the doctors said it was, well, it was like, uh, it's like, almost like they were describing game that was slaughtered and hung up. That's how they're describing what they were seeing. They used those terms. And they decided that Yes, there was a there was amount of blood in her in her vital organs, so they cut those out and put them in a, a a separate box, and then buried them about a foot above the coffin, and he buried it. Wow! Mercy died. One foot above the coffin. Yeah, about a foot above the coffin. He said. Wow! Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, they, Okay, keep going. I'm sorry. 
I don't know. Would you like to hear the letter? Please, yeah, yeah. yeah. Please. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't do it justice. If you want me to read the letter, if you don't mind, that'd be fine. Yeah. You can edit it if you want or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Please. Okay. Well, this letter was written uh, Monday, July. 21st, 1788. He said, Respected sir, and that's to his friend, Colonel Elijah Williams of Stockbridge, Mass. While I was on my journey to Stratford, my daughter was taken with bleeding inwardly at Hartford and raised blood several times since. You must think that these things excited great concern in a parent whose family was so wasted with consumption, three dead with it, and two more in imminent danger of death. I had consulted many about opening the graves of some of the deceased to see whether there were any signs of the dead praying on the living. And though many advised to it, and most thought it awful, they consented. And last Friday, Mother Dickinson's grave was open. That was Mother. She had been buried almost three years. Nothing appeared like what was represented in Mr. Smith's son. There's so obviously he knew about another case in this family named Smith, and they were looking for signs that I guess they saw in Mr. Smith's son. Uh, she was wasted away to a mere skeleton when she died. The coffin had moisture in it towards the foot, face fallen into the bones, and lungs consuming as fast as any part did not probably adhere together. It seemed like a meal, a little wettish. Dr. Scott of this town opened the body. We did not try to separate the lungs from the body, but buried it again. It was suggested that perhaps she was not the right person. Since I had begun to search, I concluded to search further. And this morning opened the grave of my daughter, Dwight. She had died the last of my three daughters almost six years ago. She was considerable fleshy when she died, quite so six or seven weeks before death. On opening the body, the lungs were not dissolved, but had blood in them, though not fresh, but clotted. The lungs did not appear as we would suppose they would in a body just dead, but near a state of soundness than could be expected. The liver, I am told, was as sound as the lungs. We put the lungs and liver in a separate box and buried it in the same grave of 10 inches or a foot above the coffin. As I never saw any grave opened, save to receive the dead, before, I am, un I am unable to judge how long after burial it is before bodies usually are reduced to dust, and these instances do not determine it. One being, as to the lungs, more reduced in three years than the other in six. How shall I leave you and others to make what speculations you think proper upon this manner, matter? only observing that the soil in which the persons were buried was very different. Hatfield, between a sand and a loam, the other sand and gravel with many roundish stones. That's a P.S. Since writing the above, I have conversed with Dr. Scott, who opened the body. He said the lungs and liver appeared to him much in such a state as he should suppose they would in a creature which was opened and hung up till it began to taint. There was blood in the lungs, perhaps several spoonfuls together, 
which appeared to him much like the blood drawn from a person's arm that had stood 26 hours. J.F. Wow, just thinking about, you know, being a father and having to do that is very, uh, I mean, that's heavy. That's a very pretty heavy thing to do. You know, sure. not only the, his three, his three daughters, but is also his mother-in-law. Well, um, well, hold on now, Roman. I don't know if the mother-in-law died of tuberculosis, but I did find it funny that that was his first, uh, his first culprit that he went after. Yes. You yes. know, that's the first inclination in our culture that because, because the mother-in-law is such a, a figure of, whatever yeah now you think oh yeah the mother-in-law of course but <laughs> right I, i'm sure he wasn't thinking along those lines that in 1788 mm. but there's so many amazing things about this uh case and and the letter to me is you know it's extraordinary for someone who was a you know the minister of a Congregation, and he was the minister of that church for over 50 years. This was in the early years of his ministry. But he, he was there for about 55 years as, as the minister. Right. And to me, it's so, it's so matter of fact that he's talking about, and he was also a scientist, he's talking about the soil. Maybe the soil in the two different cemeteries was, was so different that, that that accounts for the difference in the decomposition. And I think it's also interesting that he said, having never seen a dead body before, you know, after it's been in the ground. So that's another uh, significant concept is that, yeah, he's the congregational minister. He saw lots of dead people because he had ministered, you know, at their funerals. And, and viewing the dead body was a tradition there. And they forced, they forced young children to go and look at the dead body. They wanted you to confront death you know, because that was your ultimate destination. So they wanted you to start being comfortable with the idea of death from the very beginning of your life until you died. And so he didn't know what happened to, to bodies after they decomposed. And then the doctor who's talking about it in terms of hanging up game until it tainted or what blood would be would look like 26 hours after you were drawn. And he would know because he was drawing blood from people as part of their, you know, humorous humor. Yeah. Trying to get back in balance. So they're they're bleeding you. So he would knew he knew what blood would look like after yeah. several hours. Yeah, it, it's very interesting to to think of, you know, this time period when the modern anatomy probably wasn't readily available. Uh, you know, they didn't have books they could refer to to see what you know the the yeah. dissected body of a human looked like so yeah and even to to see you know stages of decomposition i'm curious you know how oh, much go ahead that that raises such a great point because that's why i think medical doctors were at these exhumations or quite a quite often medical doctor would be there and for one reason, it would be just out of curiosity to be able to see and, you know, actually uh, by opening up a person's body and looking at the earth and stuff, they could see what, what goes on. And there was a whole uh, 
you can call it an occupation or a profession. They were called resurrectionists. They were body stealers. So they would go out and steal bodies to take to, to, to the medical colleges who would buy them so that the students and the doctors themselves could, uh, could perform uh, uh, autopsy. Yeah, the early organ donors, right? Well, and, and, and well, there, yeah, that's the thing is that people in those days weren't donating their bodies <laughs> to science, so they had to go out at night and and, and resurrect them. Yeah. <laughs> well, and and Lots only only less than maybe like a century later, we have you know exhumations of tombs in Egypt, and you know mummified bodies are found and when you mentioned how the organs were separated and buried in a different box that image of mm -hmm. mummification came to mind because that's a, a part of mummification they remove certain organs and separate them right. from the coffin is there uh, any anything that you've learned about uh that you know maybe more ancient folklore that connects to what you've seen in in new england uh this time period well, they're called vital organs because of that's um, that's where the the seat of your soul was at one time. It was believed to actually was the heart. Now I think we we think of the brain as being you know the seat of 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 life or humanity because this is where you know this is where we we think our mind is. This is how we think. But in the early years, it was it was the blood that was the life, and it was the heart that was important because the heart was the was the organ that pumped the life through your body, pumped the blood. And so that's why, in most cases, they were looking for fresh blood in the heart, because that's where that's where the seed of the life was. That's where that's where your soul was. So the belief as it existed in in New England, I think, was more of a spiritual connection between family members and the dead body. It was a sympathetic connection. It wasn't, there were no, no dead bodies coming out of the grave and attacking their family members, biting their necks, sucking their blood. None of that. There was one outlier case of that. And that's, you know, that could be an elaborate, an elaboration to make it a better story. I'm not sure. But in all the cases except one that I found, that there's no uh, talking about the bodies, the dead person coming back to harm the living. And it wasn't even that they were blaming someone like the mother-in-law or the daughter or Mercy Brown for killing family members. It was that there was some evil thing that it inhabited the body of this corpse. Mm. So... The soul had already departed. Wherever it was going to go, it had departed. And in the meantime, something evil, an evil angel is called it sometimes, that occupied this person's uh, body, taking residence, say, in the heart. And from there, it was drawing life out of the family members, maybe even literally blood, but drawing the life out from a distance, we call it sympathetically. So the implicit in this belief is that the connection between the living and the dead is never completely severed. 
Right. Right. Very. Well, it's like after death, it still can exist. Yeah. And so you have to eliminate that harmful connection by killing the evil that's, that's, that keeps the uh, that keeps that conduit, that evil fatal conduit, alive. Hmm. Yeah. It, it seems like there's a parallel. And a, and a big difference with the witch trials, right? Maybe, uh, you know, different in the sense that people who fell victim to consumption, uh, they weren't necessarily thought of as the original source of the vampire. Rather, the, the vampire had taken over them. This evil had, had altered who they were, whereas maybe right. witches were more considered, like, responsible for creating uh, the sure. evil, right? Were witches ever associated with vampire cases, people sort of trying to pin it on witches or uh, would-be witches? No, not in New England. As far as I can tell, they, these were two separate traditions. I think they, you know, I I would say the wellspring of tradition that informed both of these traditions um, is there, but they're they're divergent and separate traditions. Mm. I don't see it. I don't see a direct connection at all between, let's say, the Salem witch trials of 1692 and Mercy Brown of 1892, mm. except in the in the realm of so-called magical beliefs, right. in the realm of the unseen and the unknown, uh, evils and dangerous, dangerous beings. I'm curious if in any of your um, studies of vampirism and history, you've come across the Renfield syndrome as opposed to tuberculosis, um, which is the more, uh, I guess it's probably more well-known than tuberculosis as a vampiric case because this one involves actual like fascination with blood and drinking blood. Um, so people actually call it, medical vampirism or uh, auto vampirism and I'm wondering um, how many cases you've come across uh, that have the Renfield syndrome well I haven't found them in historically in, in, the, in the, the corpus of data that I that I'm mining uh, but the, I can I can refer you to uh, to a scholar who does study that now on his written several books about it and his name's John Edgar Browning and, uh, he did a PhD dissertation actually on so-called real vampires I think I think uh, he did a kind of an ethnography of this in uh, New Orleans so yeah there's a whole there's a whole you can call them folk groups if you want mm-hmm people who you want to call it the Renfield uh, syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. They're vampires in the sense that they require, uh, they require human blood to maintain a healthy existence. Mm. And it, it, you mentioned New Orleans uh, and I noticed you, um, for your uh, PhD maybe, or your master's, I don't remember. Um, you wrote a, about, African-American voodoo 
And I'm curious if the vampire is found in that uh, tradition or maybe something similar, uh, because I know New Orleans is steeped in uh, many African, uh, you know, magical rituals. I mean, even the whole Mardi Gras festival has the whole cruise, the mystical cruise that, uh, you know, symbolize everything from Osiris to Merlin, you know, on the, in these parades <laughs> they do. So, yeah, there's clearly a mystical culture going on down there, but is there a vampire within that, uh, that particular magical worldview? Uh, some people think so. Uh, I think uh, uh, I don't. I don't see it here. I I was reading a book about that someone had written about vampires in New Orleans. Uh, I'm not convinced. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have heard that uh, the count. I think it may maybe more legend than historical documentation behind it but. yeah yeah i would i would support that uh, based solely on the fact that the vampire i've heard of uh is also blamed to be or or suspected to be the count saint germain and anytime you see his name associated uh, there's usually you know some funny business going on to say the least but yeah uh that that is an interesting time period early uh, 20th century New Orleans and, you know, mm-hmm. how the voodoo culture yeah. even made its way into popular music. I mean, uh, Robert Johnson and selling his soul to the devil. You have to wonder if that oh, yeah. came from uh, the voodoo. Yeah, go to the crossroads. Right, right. Crossroads at midnight, that's where it happens. Wow, wow. According now, to folk tradition. Now, isn't there something about the crossroads or, or maybe a way to prevent vampires by doing something at the crossroads, burying something at a crossroads? Yeah, well, the crossroads is a, is a great place to shed some sort of evil. Mm. Okay. Because that's the crossroad is, you know, literally and metaphorically, that's where people are going to be passing by a lot. So let's say if you want to get rid of a, of a wart, you can take a steel dish rag, here's one way to do it, and rub it on your wart and bury it at the crossroads. And then the next person coming by will, will get your wart. And so it'll leave you. And in fact, there's a for removing a sty, you can do the same thing, a sty on your eye. And then you say the little charm, sty, sty, leave my eye and pass the next one, and take the next one passing by. So, yeah. Yeah, the crossroads is a place to, to shed evil and to encounter supernatural things, too. Excommunicated people who were considered not worthy of being buried per se in the cemetery sometimes they were buried at at the crossroads yikes yeah that's uh, certainly a potent place as you say Mm -hmm. uh, an intersection where many people pass by interstitial space you know a boundary of more than just uh, right. <laughs> you know two roads but maybe two realms yeah 
it, the melting pot sort of, of humanity at the crossroads. Right, right. And America certainly has that national ideation of being a melting pot. And when you consider all of the different uh, esoteric cultures that have found, uh, you know, a foundation, made a foundation, settled into America. It's this mystical melting pot. You know, you have all these uh, folklores from European to African to the native folklores that were already present, all sort of blending and fusing into maybe what became the uh, culture of the mid 20th century, right? This sort of uh, uh, tune-in or tune-out, drop-out kind of movement and, and people, you know, trying to explore uh, the world beyond like maybe their grandfathers couldn't have imagined being all wrapped up in things like the Depression and the World Wars, you know, this, this great uh, uplifting and nourishment of the human soul. I mean, sure, the drug um, you know, onslaught kind of hampered that movement there was uh there was a a kernel of i would say enlightenment that occurred in that time period and and maybe the melting pot of mystical cultures was responsible for that i don't know just my sort of uh, waxing over here yeah i get it <laughs> well no, this is a uh... I've been corresponding with someone from the the UK who's who's uh, studying vampires, and uh, he didn't know that much about you know the American tradition, and so even though he's very knowledgeable about worldwide vampire traditions, what happened here, he's still trying to fathom. How it's why and how it's so, in a sense, different from its European, uh, where it probably came from, from its European origins. Mm -hmm. And I think that one reason is is because we are so diverse in terms of where people have come from. You know, beginning even early, not not everybody was from the southeast of England in, in the colonies. Right. And, so there were people coming from all over, all over the world, and especially if you include the, the enslaved people that were brought here, you know. Yeah. Not real, but people, people don't leave their folk, like you suggested, people don't leave their folklore behind. It comes with them. And, and if, it, if it doesn't work, if you can't make it work, then it becomes maybe just part of memory culture. But people are adaptive, and, and, and of course, because folklore is from people, of people, is people, then the folklore is also adaptive. It's dynamic. It can change the circumstances. It doesn't stay the same all the time. Yeah. Now, adaptive folklore. Now, when it comes to uh, the more modern sort of investigations, I want to ask you about something. There was a case 
relatively recently within the past couple of decades where some teenagers in Connecticut, I think it was Jewett City, uh, they, you know, threw their baseball oh. onto a rock pile or something. They're digging around in these rocks trying to find something and they unearthed the skeleton. And of course, you know, they call in the police and the police say, well, this isn't really our jurisdiction. You need to call a, an archaeologist to talk to figure out this one. And uh, it turned out that this person that was, uh, you know, buried in this unmarked grave was connected to vampire lore somehow. And I'm wondering, you know, how much of that story has been uncovered, you know, working with what was there, you know, you had to piece it together from the, from the future into the past. Were we able to find out who that person was? Could you do genealogy with that sort of case? I mean, what was the scoop? Yeah, well, the, you're, you're talking about the case of J.B. It's called J.B. because on his coffin lid, spelled out in brass tacks, was J.B. 55, which presumably were, were his initials and probably the age of his, his age when he died, age 55. And yeah, there's been a lot of research now done by not only archaeologists, by, but with the DNA, DNA experts, and so we actually have a name now for JB. It's John Barber. And NB was buried next to him. It said, I think it said NB 13. That was probably his son, Nathan Barber, who died around that age. Scholars have now found, researchers have found uh, an obituary for Nathan Barber. And that's where the name John came from, his father, John. So uh, yeah, that's a very interesting case, and it continues to evolve as, as more and more information becomes available. But his JB had been exhumed after burial, maybe 10 years or so, and then his head had been removed and turned in the opposite direction, and then his two thigh bones, the femurs, had been removed and put in a cross across his chest. Then the head was placed on those. Wow. And then he was reburied. And, and was that a common thing to do at the time to make that sort of uh, symbol with the skull and the femur bones? It wasn't common. It wasn't common in, in New England tradition, but it has precedent in Europe, including Great Britain. Right. Well, I recently learned about these European, uh, or in England, they have these men called the Bonesmen who would you know, dig up bones for various reasons, uh, whether for, you know, bone meal or who knows what. But, uh, yeah, they, they had that uh, emblem of the skull and crossbones, you know, like the Jolly Roger pirate flag even. Too. Right, right. Yeah. Mm. Well, there was a whole tradition of medicine called the Paracel, you know, the... Paracelsian tradition, and where they would look for human body parts to use as medicine. It was called mummia or mummy. In fact, that comes from originally they were getting uh, parts of, of mummies from from Egypt. Mm-hmm. Mummy dust. Yeah, and then it expanded. Mummia became almost any kind of uh, human body part. You could even, you know, scrape the skull and get stuff to use. 
Yeah, the, the Paracelsian uh, tradition of medicine is quite fascinating. I've been down that rabbit hole. Um, mm -hmm. Another, another ta uh, name for a lot of that stuff is called medical cannibalism because they would, yeah. in fact, With eat medicinal cannibalism, which is, yeah. in a sense, that was going on in, in New England, only in a, in a different form. Yes. Burning things and then taking the ashes. Mm -hmm. So burning is a purification ritual. And per Paracelsus was also, he was deep in alchemy as well, and he was running um, in the circles of famous alchemists in that, in the time of, I think he was 16th, 17th century. And yeah, he, he's made a huge, he was, he, even though he was doing a lot of really interesting tactics, he, he broke away from humors though, if I'm not mistaken. Um, mm -hmm. I think he, he kind of stood foot on the hum humors and he's known as the father of toxicology. Paracelsus, okay. I think, um, yeah, he, he definitely made some big, big strides that is used today, but obviously most of everything else is thrown to the wayside. Um, and well, I that think tradition did come to New England, too, the Paracelsian tradition. Mm. Oh, I see. Yeah. Through who? Uh, well, there was a, a Puritan minister, for one, who was into that tradition. Uh, he, wrote, there was he wrote poetry about it, talking about, you know, using his own son's body parts. Mm -hmm. There was a... Uh, it, wasn't uh, strong. it wasn't strong in this country, but it was here. Yeah. There's a school of Paracelsian school by Frater Albertus, um, who wrote the book, um, The Handbook of Alchemy. Um, and, and, but that school has thus been shut down and... Frater Albertus was running circles with Manly P. Hall um, back in the day, and Manly P. Hall made some appearances at the Paracelsian school as well. So there, it definitely was here, and he had some. And that, there was folklore tied into the Paracelsian medicine, definitely. Like it was, there's like some interesting spiritual superstition as well as high academic, and at that time, very, very, very well received in the medical world. And what was cool about Paracelsus in my in my looking at him that he um, wouldn't do his lectures in Latin. He would do them in German, which was like the the lay people's speak, so that so that uh, the the good you know the good people of the community could understand what he was trying to bring. And his colleagues looked at him like with a frown, like why. Why would you speak in German? Like we are speaking in Latin and doing course in Latin. You don't want the the lay people to know what we are talking about. But that's what he did. So I could talk all day about Paracelsus. I really do, and I do enjoy that history. It's it's beautiful. Um, I want to ask you, um, as we might be on the uh, on the tail end of our chat, uh, what's one of the the more strange? Well, we talked about burning the heart and eating the ashes as as a form of um, kind of like uh, preventative measures of vampirism. And then we talked about the skull and crossbones with the JB case. Uh, but what, is there any other uh, really strange, weird practices that they would do that, that stuck out to you in your research? Well, but, <clears throat> there's one element that I think, I don't know how weird or strange it is. It, to me, it's, it's still a mystery. 
and that is in a number of cases they were looking for a vine that was growing either out of the corpse or through the coffin. Oh. Along with, so you would have to take that vine, cut it, and burn it along with the vital organs in many cases. And, and in a few cases, the, the description of the vine was, well, it was growing out of the vitals of the corpse. And the belief was, in some cases, that if the vine, once the vine got out of the coffin and went to another coffin, then another person in the family was going to die. Whoa. So that's why you would have to find the vine and destroy it. That's the case in, in Willington, Connecticut in 1784, which is the first case I found in, in New England. A, a foreign quack doctor had come to town as a, and, and told, him, told people he could cure consumption. And so he induced a man named Isaac Johnson to zoom the bodies of two of his children and, and to look for this vine. And if he found the vine, then he was to take it and take the vital organs out and burn them. Wow, that is fine. What they were looking for, so I think they just reburied the two, the two children. What, this let it go with that. This vine, it kind of reminds me of, uh, and I'm not going to remember the name of the disease, but these poor victims of whatever it is, they grow these like microplastic fibers inside of their body, and scientists have no clue why this is happening to people. Uh, but that's very Whoa. vine-like. I don't know if you've seen that. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's fascinating. <laughs> but I, I haven't been able to find like the, the folklore pedigree of this belief about grave plants, plants yeah. growing out of the out of the corpse or out of the coffin and so to me it's like how it came here where it came from yeah that is super fascinating i've looked and i've looked and i've asked other scholars who might be able to find this and right now it's a mystery but that's why when you said weird that's what came to my mind so yeah because right now it's 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 pedigree is a little inexplicable but That is just another one of the, yeah, one of the many folklores behind, you know, a reason to dig up a coffin of your loved one to see if you are going to get cursed or if anybody else in your family. It was a form of protection and a form of resistance against the, the vampire to, to go dig up the graves. I mean, that's just, I mean, in today's society to th- even consider doing something like that. Is like almost blasphemy. So that's really fascinating. Another, wow. you know, this is kind of crazy because we we were just talking about Paracelsian stuff and uh, skull moss or usnea, which is the known as like wizard's beard too. It grows on oak trees a lot. It's a type of lichen. Um, specifically, will grow out of the skull of a deceased person that has been hung. For sure, definitely hung. So they would, and that was used, and that would thus be harvested um, to for medicinal purposes, which is fascinating because the lichen itself only grows on specific host trees um, and a lot of times oak. And so that, I mean, if you're a druid or study druidism, like that's also very fascinating. Um, yeah, yes. 
So that's so cool. I've had a great chat uh, with you today. Yeah, thank uh, you so much, Dr. Bell. This has been so fascinating. You know, there's, there's, I mean, endless stories, as you already know. Uh, but for the listeners who, who tuned in, where can they go to find more of your stuff? Obviously, we spoke about your, your book, Food for the Dead. Uh, is there a website that folks can go to to pick that up? Uh, do, you, do you have a preference in that realm or, or maybe something that you would like to share with our audience? No, it's it's available through all, any all, any and all the sources where you want to go and get your books. Wonderful. The dead, on the trail of New England's vampires. The newer edition is uh, 2011, published by Wesleyan University Press. So uh, I I would recommend the newer edition because there's a, a new preface and I talk about some of the newer things that I found and also updates and things that are in the, the text itself. Mm. Wonderful. Wonderful. All right. Well, Dr. Bell Roman, you. this has been fantastic. Uh, wow, thank you so much for your time. I, I hope we can uh, have you back on for another interview at some point. But uh, until next time, okay. have a wonderful okay. evening. And everyone tuning in, thank you for uh, checking out the show. Any final thoughts before we wrap up? Uh, well, if anybody uh, finds any new cases, let me know. <laughs> I'll be sure to do that. Um, I'm always looking for uh, new examples. Yeah. Because I know this is what I found is just the tip of a much larger iceberg. Mm. Wonderful. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Cheers. Thank you.